This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're always looking for new ideas and topics from our listeners, so please reach out, share your ideas. You can email us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com or connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and you can find links to all that in the show notes. Now, on to this week's episode. I am very proud, though, of how children's hospitals, including our own, have responded to the pandemic, doing everything they can to preserve team member jobs, supporting their faculty and medical staffs, while keeping everybody safe. Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. Today, we will be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the pediatric population and the health systems that serve them. We have the privilege of hosting two guests from Children's Hospital Colorado, Rafe Schwartz, Chief Strategy Officer, and Dr. Sean O'Leary, MD, Infectious Disease Specialist and Director of the Colorado Practice-Based Research Network. We also have our very own Dr. Maddie McDowell, MD, Intelligence Principal and Medical Director of Quality and Strategy. Maddie is a pediatrician by training and leads the development of SG2's Impact of Change Forecast, which projects healthcare utilization over the next decade. So from the beginning of the pandemic, the narrative has largely been that children are not very deeply affected by COVID-19. But let's start by taking a step back and just discuss the key clinical impacts, both direct and indirect, on children. Dr. O'Leary, let's start with you. It became fairly clear early in the pandemic that the virus was much more severe in the elderly compared to kids. But we also learned fairly quickly that it's incorrect to say that it's completely benign in kids. So just thinking about the clinical aspects first, the direct effects, we've had tens of thousands of hospitalizations in kids, several hundred pediatric deaths. COVID-19 actually fits into the top 10 causes of death for children if you look at a yearly basis. It's by no means completely benign in children from a clinical standpoint. The indirect effects on kids have really been profound in terms of missed school, missed learning opportunities, impact on mental health, and we could go on. Yes, and we saw that Children's Colorado recently declared a state of emergency for children's mental health in Colorado, an indirect health impact for kids. Early in the pandemic, we started seeing an increase in urgent visits to our emergency department, for example, at Children's Hospital for mental health issues. And that's really only increased throughout the pandemic. And it's not just us that's being seen around the country and even around the world. Mental health issues, anxiety, depression, suicidality, just really going through the roof in kids. That's been really troubling. I'm hearing the same thing from our primary care colleagues that they're seeing crazy numbers of kids with mental health issues relative to prior years. John, if I could add a couple things to what you said, really an unfortunate second tragedy of COVID-19 has been the impact on children's mental health. Let me just share a little bit from my even non-clinical perspective. At Children's Colorado, each of our executives gets to round on a unit. I round on the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, and we are regularly and deeply saddened by the number of kids who are being admitted to the PICU for self-harm. The increase is really startling and the severity is frightening. Emergency room visits in April this year for mental health were up 90% relative to last year. And the top reason for these visits is really suicide ideation or attempts. And the number of these kids who have required invasive ventilation or even ECMO is more than prior years. Children's hospitals, not just ours, but children's hospitals, mental health units are full. Children are waiting for inpatient spots, and we really just don't have the workforce, the capacity to meet the needs. 
Kids are just dealing with a lot of chronic stress. They're burned out and their needs for mental health services is totally outstripping the system right now. This is May. It's the Mental Health Awareness Month, and we really must continue to explore ways to keep kids physically and mentally healthy. And just to add a little context, we were in a pediatric mental health crisis prior to the pandemic with shortages of providers to be able to provide mental health care to children. So this increase on top of an already existing crisis has really had a profound impact on kids. Maddie, from the forecasting perspective, what are the trends in pediatric utilization related to behavioral health services? COVID has accelerated the growth in unfortunate demand for behavioral health. We've seen rising incidents in behavioral health prior to COVID and also rising acuity. So the patients that were presenting had higher acuity. Compounded with that, we had limited access to upstream preventative behavioral health services, which exacerbated crises, demand, and growth. We unfortunately don't see that dramatically changing in the short term. And because of that, we see more emergency demand, more care for emergency psych issues that will require either the ED, inpatient, partial hospitalization, or intensive outpatient setting. The good news is there is growth in services in the outpatient patient setting in terms of intensive outpatient therapy, which is in many cases an ideal choice for a child so that they can remain in the home setting. Not in all situations, of course, though. We will likely see higher demand for ED visits and inpatient in the next three to five years, and COVID is only exacerbating that. What about the impact of the avoidance of care? Are we seeing any impact on respiratory illness or vaccination rates due to kids not accessing care or from children staying home in general? Let's go to you first, Dr. O'Leary. Yeah, one of the things we saw with the pandemic was a real decrease in other respiratory viruses other than COVID-19. So it was a very strange winter from that perspective. Normally, there's a big surge in hospitalizations for influenza and RSV in particular, but other respiratory viruses as well. And we just basically did not see that other than COVID. And that was true around the country. We did see a big drop in routine vaccinations immediately last March of 2020. And that was very broad across the country profound drops with administered doses of vaccines. And while we have seen a pretty good bounce back for a lot of the preventive care that routinely happens, including vaccination, it's not back. It's gotten essentially back to baseline, but there are a lot of kids who have not been caught up. There's a big concern right now that as we sort of re-enter normalcy as vaccination rates climb and COVID cases continue to go down and restrictions loosen, there's more mixing. One, a lot of these normal respiratory viruses that circulate a lot are going to circulate more, and we're seeing some evidence of that already. But more concerning is these vaccine-preventable diseases. If we don't get kids caught up, for example, on measles vaccination, it's only a matter of time before we start to see more measles outbreaks along the lines of what we saw in 2019, and potentially much larger, because those outbreaks that we saw in 2019 tended to be in pockets of under-vaccination in certain areas. We had mostly very high vaccination coverage across the country. So we saw cases in the few thousands, whereas now where we have a broad decrease in measles vaccination across the country, we could have a lot more areas that are prone to outbreaks. So we really need to get kids caught up. Absolutely. And when we think a little bit about solving those issues through care delivery or even just evolving based on changes in population wants and needs, Rafe, how are you thinking differently about how to serve this patient population? 
I will say in advance, this is not the solution to the lack of vaccines for measles and other diseases in the community. But one of the things that we've really been spending a lot of time thinking about and how we're going to change our delivery is digital health. We believe digital health allows us to better meet some of our families where they are, whether that's the Denver metro area or a thousand miles away. I really think it's evolved over three phases. In the first phase of the pandemic, children's hospitals had to rapidly transition to telehealth visits to protect their team members and families from unnecessary exposure to COVID and also to conserve PPE. In the second phase, ongoing travel restrictions made it very difficult for families to visit, especially from out of state, and telehealth became increasingly important to manage complex and chronic diseases for patients from afar. And now in this third phase, I think many children's hospitals are reactivating their campuses and outreach sites with a very thoughtful mix of both in-person and telehealth visits, limiting travel burden for many families while still achieving excellent outcomes and great satisfaction rates. As an example, we're still operating at about 20% of our visits delivered via telehealth. And it's not just specialty visits in the home that we're doing through telehealth. We've also gotten a lot more versatile in where we use it. And so we're doing specialty consults into our partner hospital critical care units, their pediatric units, their emergency departments, and also doing a lot more virtual diagnostic interpretations and also pursuing remote monitoring in the home. So really a complete reconsideration of how we deliver care, both in person and digitally. And Maddie, we've been pretty bullish on the shift in the virtual setting in our forecast for our adult population. Do you see digital health on the pediatric side growing as aggressively as we do for the adult population over the next decade? Yes, we do see a similar trend. What we saw this year in 2020 was significant uptick in April. The majority of visits were being performed virtually. They went back to in-person gradually over the course of 2020. But it's interesting, it's the same number, Rafe. We had nationally 21% by the end of the year and holding in January, 21% of visits remained virtual. Now we are getting full payment for those virtual visits under the Emergency Use Act. We really need to see where that goes after this expires to, to see if we'll continue at the same rate. But we do believe eventually payment will be in place for virtual at a level that will continue to see virtual visits grow. And we expect about one in three visits to become virtual by the end of the decade. You know, part of it is new technologies that allow you to do more remote diagnostics and allow more clinical capabilities will expand the applications to new conditions. The next thing that that makes me think of is the level of acuity that you're seeing in the in-person setting. I was just thinking back to last April, right at the beginning of COVID, when I had to bring my daughter into Lurie Children's here in Chicago to the emergency room. And it was midnight on a Saturday and the waiting room was really quiet and empty, which at least it used to be pretty unheard of. Are those volumes gone for good? Are patients that come back to the ED or other in-person settings sicker than they were before? With the advent of mask wearing and social distancing and remote schooling, we did experience almost a near elimination of the respiratory season and a decrease in accidental injuries through 2020. As children's hospitals, we experienced an immense drop in our low acuity services. And the care that remained at children's hospitals was therefore really of the highest acuity. 
It also may have been exacerbated by what you said before, Kelly, that some families might not have sought early treatment and their children could have presented in worse condition than they historically would have. Our case mix index, our CMI, is up a little more than 10% in 2021 compared to prior years. And we see that acuity continuing through much of this year. We are finally seeing some other low acuity care come back. And so that might represent a little bit of a balancing factor, but acuity is really high and it's really putting a lot of pressure on our teams. Let's pivot to the financial impact of the last year on children's hospitals. The financial situation for children's hospitals from the outside looks as though it's been pretty challenging. There's been a huge drop in volumes. The payer mix really always is skewed toward Medicaid. Children's hospitals were not necessarily the target of significant relief funds either. How are children's hospitals and more specifically Children's Colorado addressing the financial challenges that have been brought on by COVID? A great question, Kelly. You really hit the nail on the head. It's been the perfect storm for all the reasons you stated. Volumes down, shift to Medicaid. Some states like ours have more covered lives under Medicaid because of unemployment, so they had to reduce Medicaid rates even. And as you pointed out, we didn't get sufficient relief funds relative to what we needed. Children's hospitals across the country have seen their margins seriously eroded. I am very proud, though, of how children's hospitals, including our own, have responded to the pandemic, doing everything they can to preserve team member jobs, supporting their faculty and medical staffs, while keeping everybody safe. To recover from the financial impact of the pandemic, many children's hospitals, though, have had to pause or even close select physical sites, reduce team member benefits, and make other very difficult decisions. As an example, children's hospitals, including us, have had to reduce investments in facilities, in equipment and other capital, in programs, in recruitments, both for new and replacements, and also in our research enterprises. We've grown research this year from a grant perspective, but I think that's really a tribute to our terrific faculty in terms of investments in all of those capital and, and programmatic items. We've had to make some really difficult decisions. We've turned to our foundations who have worked hard to support us, fundraising to fill gaps and also for COVID relief. But margins, despite all that, remain depressed for us and other children's hospitals and likely will at least through the end of this year. And, you know, something that SG2 has really pivoted toward and has become much more central in a lot of our content is the relationship between financial and strategic planning. So when you think about how you're managing through some of these tough decisions that you have to make, have you changed the way that you're doing strategic planning? Has the time frame, the goals or the way that you measure progress changed? Yeah, that's a fair way to frame it, Kelly. We have changed strategic planning quite a bit. First, in terms of prioritization, we had to accelerate some of our strategic imperatives. We talked about digital health as an example, where we had well over 100,000 telehealth visits last year. We didn't really have the time to plan that. We just had to do it. On the flip side, other strategic priorities really had to be delayed so we could focus on the reality of our pandemic situation. Strategy doesn't feel like it used to. In traditional strategies, we took stock of our environment, developed strategic plans, implemented them, and then measured them. And now, really based on how we see healthcare scenarios emerging, we have to accelerate some plans and wait on others until the time is really right. 
And in regards to that time frame, we just haven't had the luxury of time. In many cases, we have really had to quickly pivot from strategic plans to immediate execution. We have what we call here a secret sauce for doing strategy at Children's Colorado. And when we follow it, we feel like we have a pretty good track record of success. Unfortunately, we've really had to sacrifice many of those ingredients of that sauce for urgency. We're proud of the strategic decisions we're making, but we haven't really had the time that we've needed or wanted to really get things right. So that's been difficult. So I'd like to wrap up by asking all of you one last question. The pandemic is often referred to as unprecedented, and I'm sure we're all tired of hearing that word. But some of the changes that took place will likely revert back to pre-pandemic state. However, when you think about changes, both in terms of needs and care delivery in pediatrics, what is one thing you can think of that maybe won't revert back to the way that it was before? Let's start with you, Maddie. There's a few things. One, the infectious disease control measures that were put in place for social distancing really had a silver lining for particularly the medically fragile population, because not only did it reduce respiratory infections, but it reduced exacerbations of asthma, for example, and other chronic lung disease problems, which reduced hospitalizations. So we could see more widespread use of mask wearing for select populations in select environments. We are likely, though, to see an increase in infectious disease coming back gradually this year and over the course of next year as we relax those social distancing guidelines. You know, one of the things that we did very quickly here at Children's Colorado was form teams to help figure out the care that could be delivered for taking care of COVID-19. And some of that was logistical. What do we do if we need to take care of adult patients? What do we do with all of these new recommendations coming down for antiviral use? How do we handle these patients clinically? These teams that were put together were able to act very quickly and nimbly to develop clinical guidelines that could then provide the best uniform care across the system. The lessons we learned in doing that were certainly going to be carrying those through into the future for other, both, you know, potentially other pandemics for sure, but other infectious diseases and really non-infectious diseases as well. Great point. Rafe? Sure. I would just highlight that one of the things the pandemic has done is to bring our pediatric community much closer together. It's really rallied all of our different organizations and individual providers to work together to address the needs for children. I just think about the myriad of ways that we now collaborate with our community partners, our primary care providers, to really create a more seamless system of care. And I'll just highlight one of them. Every Thursday night, now it's monthly, but it used to be every Thursday night, we had a virtual town hall with nearly 500 primary care providers from around the region to share learnings, to share the science, to share best practices, and to keep our kids and healthcare workers safe. I give so much credit to our physician relations team, our administrative leaders, our trio of ID physicians, of which Sean O'Leary is one on the show every week and love to listen to him, and just many of our faculty members who've participated in these collaboration efforts. I think that coming together of our pediatric community is here to stay, and it's something I'm really excited about. Fantastic. That's a great high note to end on. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at SG2Perspectives at SG2.com. 
reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizient's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.